So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. The Trump administration has undertaken aggressive efforts to expand fossil fuel development on federal lands. From moving to open up new areas for offshore drilling to lifting a moratorium on coal leasing. What are the implications of these policies? Today we're giving you an insider's take. Tommy Boudreau, the former chief of staff at the Department of Interior and the first director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management visited Epic recently. Let's listen in to his conversation with Mark Templeton, director of the Abrams Environmental Law Clinic at UChicago Law School. Last spring, I was teaching a class in energy law um, for the first time, talking about issues related to uh, extraction. Uh, and it seemed like uh, in March and April, uh, every day that I was teaching the class, I would have to check the news in advance uh, to see what new rollback uh, had been announced or had actually uh, taken place. Uh, and now we are- Yeah, it felt that way for me too. <laughs> and, and so we have now nine more months into this. So basically the anniversary of the first year of the Trump administration, a uh, year after uh, your departure from the Department of the Interior. Uh, as Sam said, you were involved in so many different initiatives. Um, the department itself, right, is a $12 billion department, more than 70,000 uh, employees. Uh, so we could probably talk about any one of the topics uh, for multiple hours itself. But we'll try to cover a fair number of topics and then be sure to leave time for questions from the audience uh, toward the end. So uh, I guess one of the first things uh, I want to uh, ask you about was uh, your f first role uh, at the Department of the Interior, uh, being the head of uh, BOEM. Um, what, obviously Deepwater Horizon kind of spurred the creation uh, of BOEM, but can you say a little bit more about kind of the Obama's uh, administration, Secretary Salazar's thinking uh, related to the creation of BOEM, what problems you were trying to solve, um, and what the implications uh, were? Yes, <clears throat> so in April of 2010, uh, I was a partner uh, at a law firm sitting in my office on Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, and I had a very uh, different type of practice uh, back then. I was focused on internal investigations, white-collar criminal work. I think one of the last big matters I worked on at that time was a Madoff-related matter, uh, you know, for a fund of fund that had um, invested in Madoff to get, you know, that steady 8% uh, that went up in smoke. Um, and when the oil spill happened, uh, I remember, probably like many of you, sort of sitting, feeling very frustrated, uh, angry, 
um, but also not knowing you know, what role I could play in uh, doing anything about it. But I remember specifically thinking, you know, here I am like teaching my kids how to recycle and you gotta put stuff in bins and then you, know, you have an accident uh, in the Gulf of Mexico that uh, puts millions of barrels of oil into the ocean and I was sort of uh, frustrated about the whole thing. Um, and uh, I got called, uh, my partner and I got called to uh, a few weeks later uh, to come into the administration uh, to help deal with the problem, uh, both to look at ways to raise standards and engage in a very ambitious reform agenda to try to make sure that an accident like that doesn't happen again, uh, but also to look inwardly at uh, federal oversight and the performance of the offshore regulator uh, at that time, the Minerals Management Service, which had gone through a number of uh, scandals uh, prior to Deepwater Horizon. And so Minerals Management Service was an interesting agency. It uh, was the product of a secretarial order uh, in 1982 from James Watt. Uh, so it didn't have any statutory basis. It was completely uh, administrative from the secretary at the time, which ended up having some advantage. It's the reason we could restructure the way we did. Um, so there was advantages to that. But it was truly a one-stop shop and was designed to be that. So uh, the Minerals Management Service had three big buckets of responsibilities. On the one hand, it was responsible for overseeing environmental reviews and leasing for the entire outer continental shelf. So federal waters from three miles offshore out to the EEZ uh, for the entire uh, US coast. It was also responsible for safety oversight, so uh, responsible for inspections and uh, the petroleum engineers who would review drilling plants, et cetera. And its other responsibility was collecting revenue from all of that activity, including onshore from oil and gas and extractive activity onshore. And so there's different ways to do the calculations, but by a lot of measures, the Minerals Management Service was second only to the IRS in terms of collecting revenue uh, for the federal government. And so after the spill had happened, there was a lot of reviews and investigations into um, the MMS and its performance and how you know, its leadership and directors spent their time. And you know, as you might expect, uh, for an agency responsible for collecting $10 billion a year, there was a lot of attention paid to uh, collecting that revenue, including from departmental leadership as well as Congress. And so you can imagine how directors spent their time. Uh, and they actually were focused on that piece uh, a lot more than uh, the other responsibilities of the agency. And that piece, the revenue collection piece, was also the source for a number of scandals uh, historically with the MMS prior to Deepwater Horizon. And so there were uh, IG investigations and criminal prosecutions of MMS personnel who were literally in bed with industry, right? So um, very cozy. Uh, and uh, after the oil spill, um, uh, a lot of questions were being raised about the MMS, its performance, its independence, its competence, its integrity. Uh, and it turns out you have one Coke and Hooker scandal when people stop giving you the benefit of the doubt. And so that was part of why we were brought in was 
uh, one, to pursue this reform agenda uh, I talked about, but also uh, to do kind of a government turnaround and to really look hard at the MMS, how to um, turn the corner uh, on the past, how to restore its credibility, how to regain uh, the public trust and confidence, uh, and how to make it work better. Um, there were these conflicts within its mission. There was issues around management focus and attention. And the solution we came up with was to essentially, uh, through a reorganization process that uh, unfolded over about 15 months, and we were very analytical about to break apart those functions and establish uh, new agencies which, with much more specific, focused, and de-conflicted missions, and then um, as was discussed at the introduction, I became the director of one of those agencies, BOEM, uh, which was responsible for environmental reviews and leasing, as well as uh, trying to stand up uh, in North America an offshore renewable energy program. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been some discussions about reorganization uh, uh, by the Trump administration, yeah. maybe even bringing these entities back. Uh, together. Uh, the career staff calls it the D-Org. The, the D-Org. Uh, so uh, what, do you, what do you think about the D-Org uh, possibility? So um, the, the entire case for the reorganization was what I described. Um, and here you are, you know, there's this catastrophe, um, but it kind of, it took that catastrophe to really um, get everyone's attention on the need for this fundamental restructuring of this long-established federal agency. And um, even under those circumstances, um, you know, we had to make the case for it, right? You had to explain, okay, in to the public, to Congress, but also to the career staff and say, here's, um, here's why we need to do this. We need to perform better um, and we need to uh, turn the corner on the past and get back on our feet and be able to do our jobs. And so there was an extremely compelling case uh, for the reorganization. And frankly, uh, putting politics aside, to undertake something like that and the disruption that comes with it, there needs to be a strong case for it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so being asked tough questions about why we were putting the department and the oil and gas industry through this, uh, were totally legitimate and they needed to be answered. So the question in my mind, um, again, without being political about it, the question in my mind to consider reversing that, given its genesis and the rationale for it in the first place, um, those questions should be asked. Like, what is the case uh, for recombining uh, the offshore uh, leasing environmental review agency with the safety authority, mm -hmm. uh, the agency we established whose sole focus, their entire mission is uh, to be, you know, the tough but fair regulator uh, uh, who is credible uh, and calls balls and strikes. So what's the case for doing that? I'll tell you, you know, I haven't heard that case. Uh, I haven't heard industry make that case. In fact, um, the folks um, I talk with an industry are concerned about it because they understand the disruption, uh, which I appreciate having done a reorg myself. Um, the last thing in the world I would do electively <laughs> is something like that. And so um, I think on the programmatic operational side, um, those questions should be asked about how wise it is. And then the part that, you know, 
to have a little bit of a political discussion, the part I really don't get if I were advising Secretary Zinke is um, the political risk you're taking on with something like that. Um, even with all of the reforms, even with industry, and the industry deserves, the offshore industry deserves a lot of credit for um, looking inward itself and upping its performance after Deepwater Horizon. Nevertheless, you know, the risks aren't zero. Um, uh, there's lots of different operators, lots of different circumstances out there. And so to take on the political risk that you can't control if there's an accident, um, no matter how big, um, it better not be another like Deepwater Horizon type accident, but if there is another incident, given um, the lack of a case for it and the lack of a benefit out of recombining the agencies, to assume that type of risk on yourself where if there is an incident, you know, Secretary Zinke is going to be the guy who made things less safe by diluting the safety mission of Bessie. Um, wouldn't be my advice, I'll put it that way. Okay. Uh, one thing, uh, I guess, kind of related to that, uh, it seems that uh, the department is, though, making some changes to some of the safety regulations, or at least was proposing some changes to the safety regulations. I guess that maybe some of that was done when you were the chief uh, of staff in terms of some of the final kind of pieces of the regulations. Um, so, for example, uh, adding a, a double set of ram shears, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, so essentially redundant safety uh, measures. So it seems like this uh, administration does have some appetite to take on more risk uh, in, in, these, in these ways. Yeah. And again, to be fair, um, so the well control rule, yes. which you were referring to, which among other things established uh, new standards, including double blind ship rams for blowout preventers uh, as kind of the last resort to um, uh, arrest a, a, a well that it's, they've lost control of uh, and that famously failed in the Deepwater Horizon incident, included a number of safety measures and was really kind of the capstone to the reform agenda uh, from the Obama administration post Deepwater Horizon. And there has been, um, you know, and I think it's sitting with ONBOIRA right now, a proposal to um, modify some aspects of that rule. I'll say, um, to be fair, uh, you know, a new administration comes in, it's their job, and I'd argue their responsibility um, to look at uh, regulation. And if there, again, is a case to be made that uh, certain aspects of the regulation don't provide a substantial enough safety or environmental protection benefit to justify the cost, that's what they're there to do. They should do that. Um, that said, uh, some aspects of the rule, and again, it hasn't been put out for comment yet, but drafts of it have leaked and some people have seen them. Um, there's some aspects of it that, again, I, you know, I'm not sure um, if I were sitting and advising Secretary Zinke, I'd advise to take on because um, I do think um, some parts of it are meaningful and they should think long and hard about uh, some of the proposals that are being put out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully they will through the uh, comment process. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing we've heard a lot or read a lot about uh, in the past few weeks uh, is the Trump's administration's uh, plan uh, for opening up all sorts of lands uh, uh, for uh, uh, potential leasing. Um, and uh, maybe you can say a little bit about the Obama administration's kind of philosophy 
pre-Deepwater, I mean, I know you weren't in the administration before Deepwater, but sort of pre-Deepwater Horizon, then what happened when you were there, uh, so we can have some context for the Trump administration's uh, proposals. Yeah. The, um, so the offshore uh, program, the way it works is um, there are these administrative planning areas that uh, the MMS and Outbaum sort of um, designed. Uh, and that carve up the outer continental shelf into distinct planning areas, uh, 27 of them or so. Um, and decisions are made through uh, this statutorily prescribed process under OXLA uh, to decide which areas um, may be made available for leasing. And you know, you'll hear a lot about or you'll read about the five-year plan um, before I came into the administration, I thought only Bolsheviks did five-year <laughs> plans, but it turns out under Oxlo we do too. Um, and what, what the five-year plan really is, when it comes down to it, is a schedule. It's like a schedule for potential lease sales. And you go through this Section 18 Oxlo process to decide in what areas do you schedule over a five-year period uh, lease sales. And it's traditionally this winnowing process that starts bigger. There's an EIS that is completed in parallel. Uh, and then out comes this program uh, of calendared lease sales. The Obama administration, I think, you know, it was, you know, there's no getting around the way in which Deepwater Horizon, across a number of issues, informed um, decisions about um, leasing. That said, um, there is, you know, there was this sort of counterweight around um, uh, making available uh, under the new standards uh, potential development, including um, areas like the Arctic, so the Beaufort Sea and Chukchi Sea, um, and consideration of other places like the Atlantic. At the end of the day, uh, in the final five-year program that the administration put out before we left office, the focus of the leasing, and the world had changed too. I mean, you need to remember some of that, that um, you know, the shell revolution happened, there was a lot more, the significance of offshore oil and gas, uh, even during you know, the eight years of the Obama administration had uh, diminished as a percentage of the domestic energy mix. And so by the time we left office, the focus was on areas that, one, had substantial and well-understood resource potential. So the Gulf of Mexico, it's one of the most prolific basins in the entire world. Well-mapped. Well-mapped, well-understood, lots of seismic, this incredible infrastructure. There are 4,000 um, production platforms offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. And all the miles of pipes and things like yeah, that. Yeah, miles of pipes, this whole spaghetti network that nobody knows about uh, on the seafloor in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and, uh, and an entire industry that resides there. And so uh, as difficult as it was, you know, when Deepwater Horizon happened, um, there was an industry present to mobilize uh, to, and it took 90 days to do it because you know, some technology had to be built on the fly to uh, cap the well, but the industry was there to do it. Um, and so and you think in, in that case, industry really did help step up? Yeah, there's okay. no question about it. No question about it. And it informed decisions and thinking and consideration of what it would take 
um, to operate in other places where you didn't have that kind of infrastructure. And so um, in areas like um, the Atlantic, for example, when the Obama administration proposed leasing in the mid and south Atlantic, because uh, we did do that, we put it out there to um, engage the public on, you know, thinking concretely about what that would mean, um, that was one of the questions was, you know, where's the infrastructure including emergency response that would support the activity? And so, um, so those were questions that were asked and, and discussed at that time and are, uh, are being asked again. Um, but in any program, including, you know, while I was there in the Obama administration, um, that balance between um, making available areas that um, you know have resource uh, and have the potential to uh, produce with, you know, what it will take to actually do it. Um, and so you look at the draft proposed program uh, that the Trump administration issued a few weeks ago um, that purported to, you know, make available uh, all except one uh, planning area on the OCS and, you know, 90% of the OCS. I mean, for folks who have been involved in this program, you know, I mean, my reaction was, okay, like that's like a press release, right? And there's a whole process that's going to actually decide what this ends up looking like. And, you know, in a way that happened more rapidly than, um, than even I expected, uh, although I did expect them to have to start, you know, walking some of this back pretty quickly, you know, to pull Florida off um, uh, after a conversation between Zinke and uh, Governor Scott sort of happened even more quickly than I thought uh, would. But even that is, um, uh, <laughs> it raises issues, right? And so one area where, you know, there should be a, some discussion uh, about is the Eastern Gulf of Mexico, which uh, abuts Florida and uh, is generally pretty well understood to have resource potential. So areas that the industry actually would be interested in, not the Schumigan Basin uh, south of the Aleutians off of Alaska. Um, you know, is that still on? Is that off? What would that mean? Um, are, um, are things that are going to have to be sorted out um, through the program now? Uh, and so that's why after that conversation with Governor Scott, you know, Zinke did get himself in a little bit of a bind where even the industry was like, wait, <laughs> whoa, what did you do? Like, you know, the Eastern Gulf, we want to talk about that. Um, so um, there's a reason why, you know, again, if I were there, I'd advise to stick with the process. Right. So um, maybe just one follow-up question related to this is, uh, you're from Alaska. Right? And so there was a lot of question uh, in the Obama administration about leasing um, uh, in the Arctic, uh, where arguably offshore you don't have the same infrastructure. I mean, you've got some of the infrastructure, uh, obviously, in terms of the onshore. Um, and obviously, Alaska is an area with tremendous natural beauty. So how, how do you, you know, maybe as an Alaskan, yeah. how would you think about kind of balancing uh, those, those questions? Yeah. And did, did you ever sort of go, oh, yeah, wow, this actually is something that uh, I can relate to. Like, this is not, yeah. this is not an academic exercise for yeah. me. No, and it wasn't, um, truly. So uh, the whole reason I'm an Alaskan is in the late 70s, my uh, dad got a job on the North Slope and moved our family to uh, Alaska after the Trans-Alaska Pipeline came online. And it was a great job for uh, a guy with a high school diploma and two tours in Vietnam, and he had this fantastic job. 
uh, working on the North Slope and the Prudhoe Bay field um, uh, in those early days. Uh, at the same time, everything you said is true about uh, Alaskans and their appreciation for uh, nature and the outdoors. Uh, and so that, um, I don't know if tension's the right word, but that balance is uh, always front in mind for uh, folks who grow up in you know, oil-producing regions like Alaska. And so um, looking at you know, leasing um, offshore Alaska, especially in the Arctic areas like you know, the Beaufort Sea and the Chukchi, um, the fact is, uh, the Beaufort, for example, uh, is an established field. Like geologically speaking, um, you know, it is an extension off of the Prudhoe Bay field. And uh, just last year, uh, there have been a number of discoveries onshore as well as offshore mm -hmm. uh, in state waters uh, and some federal um, that you know have significant uh, potential. That said, the operating environment uh, in Alaska, especially as you, you know, head further west in places like the Chukchi Sea, is completely different. Uh, and the infrastructure um, that you have in other parts of the world isn't there. You have to bring it with you, mm -hmm. uh, as we saw with uh, Shell's campaigns. Um, the weather is uh, challenging uh, and unpredictable, uh, and so it poses um, unique challenges to operate in that environment. And then there's the whole question, especially for some place like the Chukchi, if there is a discovery, um, how do you bring it to shore? How do you bring it to market? Uh, and what would be the risk and environmental impacts of all of that? And so, um, you know, I personally feel, you know, there are uh, places uh, in the, you know, offshore in Alaska, in the Beaufort that, um, you know, folks know how to operate in uh, and have a lot of potential. Um, for other places, um, I think that it's a tougher case operating economic uh, as well as environmental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of sticking with Alaska and oil for a second, you know, uh, lots of discussions about the Tax, Act, tax, uh, tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, but one aspect of that was opening up ANWR, right? Uh, and so is, is and that's, I think, in a sense, very real or arguably very real relative to what you've talked about being sort of this, you know, you start really big and then you start to narrow when you're going through this process of uh, pl planning for offshore leasing. So is there a possibility that the opening of ANWR actually might uh, have more significance than some, you know, what we hear a lot about, more about the offshore uh, planning process? Yeah. Um, so I remember in debate class in seventh grade, uh, the resolved, we should drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, pro and con. Um, and it's because it was seventh grade uh, in Alaska, there weren't that many people who wanted to take the con <laughs> <laughs> So this, I mean, this debate literally goes back to uh, Anoka, uh, 1982 in the early 80s. And so the area that we're really talking about, so the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge um, is about 19 and a half million acres total. Um, and the area we're talking about is uh, known as the 1002 area, it's section 1002 mm -hmm. of Anilka. Um, uh, 
NGOs like to call it the coastal plain and that sort of thing because 1002 sounds like a gas station. So they. So you're saying rhetoric matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people brand stuff. Um, and so the 1002 area, you know, under Anilka uh, was sort of identified as someplace that should be considered, you know, potentially over time. Um, and the debate has raged ever since then and it was built right into the statute. Um, and it had gone sort of so far as President Clinton, Clinton's desk before um, to open it and he of course vetoed it. And so when uh, I was in the administration, that area, because it's a wildlife refuge, is managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And also it, under the Department of Interior. Yeah. So, um, so that was a decision that we made, which in a way just sort of formalized the um, status quo, which was to continue managing the entire refuge, including the 1002 area as wilderness. And um, that didn't sit well in Alaska because of this ongoing debate. And so um, the legislation, because uh, it was going to take an act of Congress either way uh, to open the area up, the legislation that uh, Senator Murkowski from Alaska was able to uh, get into uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, to open the area was a major victory for her uh, and a major victory for um, uh, you know, this established uh, political position in Alaska. What it ends up meaning, uh, we'll see. You know, there, uh, the geology, you know, you can make guesses about it and you can extrapolate, um, but there hasn't been any seismic activity uh, done there to assess the geology. That would need to happen. Uh, questions need to be asked about the economics of it uh, relative to other opportunities. The legislation you know, mandates that the Interior Department conduct lease sales, uh, to lease sales within 10 years. We'll see how all of that plays out. Um, and so that's a long-winded way of saying, um, you know, not discounting the significance at a, of it at all um, because it was a moment uh, in this very long debate, whether there's actually drilling in the refuge or that part of the refuge and how extensive and what it means. Um, I think there's a lot of um, open issues before that happens. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing we were talking about a little bit before this was how, at least in terms of some of these issues, there's a general consensus in Alaska. So maybe not everyone agrees with every last point, but back to your kind of seventh grade uh, debate, the uh, vast majority of the public uh, generally su uh, supports uh, ANWR or the offshore drilling in the Arctic or things like that. Um, how did you, so to kind of you know, raise the question up a level, how did you think about that uh, when a, there may have been a local consensus on an issue, or maybe there's a local consensus in Louisiana on offshore, um, but then you have these uh, competing concerns or national concerns or national int additional different national interests. So how, how would you kind of weigh the fact that maybe the locals kind of had it, had it resolved, but you had to grapple with these other forces at work? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's fundamental to, uh, especially a place like the Interior Department, but any place in the federal government uh, where uh, and this is part of the internal um, balancing that happens and different administrations strike the balance in a different way. Um, I'll say, um, you know, those local interests, like, really are important. 
uh, and there's something that has to be paid a lot of attention to. I mean, if, if just to take Alaska as an example, um, low oil price um, has major, major effects, economic effects that, you know, reverberate across the economy uh, and across social services. And so, um, you know, that's part of where the politics comes from, right, is, you know, it's a revenue issue and it's a state that, um, you know, is largely dependent on uh, taxation of oil revenue uh, to fund the government and a host of programs that do good things. Uh, and the state really struggles in an environment where either because production's off or prices off uh, to fund those programs. And so you need to appreciate that and you need to understand what's at stake. And so, you know, that's why, you know, a lot of residents of the North Slope, uh, including Alaska Natives, um, you know, while bearing the environmental risk associated with the activity are very supportive of it because, you know, the um, Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, Alaska Native Corporation, you know, funds a lot of programs um, out of oil revenues on, uh, on their lands, and there's revenue sharing among uh, Alaska Native Corporations from it as well. And so um, it, is, uh, it is a mistake and it's irresponsible not to, um, when you're in government, make the effort to try to understand that dynamic uh, and understand the impacts that decision-making has on local communities. That said, you also have a broader responsibility. Um, and these are American resources. They belong to all of the people. You're making decisions on that basis. Um, and, you know, and I think President Obama felt this, um, uh, uh, you know, quite heavily. You have a responsibility looking out to the future, too. Uh, and so, um, that informed a lot of the discussion, too, of, you know, hard things being hard. Um, sometimes you have to make those choices, again, looking forward and looking at, you know, what's in the long run best interest, even though um, you appreciate and try to come up with ways to address uh, local hardship as well. And, and so how much of that was kind of process in terms of gathering information and coming to a decision versus, I'll say, politics, where you kind of, you know, you know who got you there, uh, and you're going to listen to what others have to say to, to make sure that you don't kind of don't go completely off the rails. But at the end of the day, there's you know you got elected by a certain set of people, and therefore you've yeah. got to de deliver to them. Yeah. Or, or which issues would you th would you maybe have more of a political lens over versus a process kind of lens? Over? Yeah, and that conversation, you know, that comes up, right? And it came up a lot on decisions like that. It came up a lot in the monuments discussion. And anytime, again you know, in consideration of my role, you know, as chief of staff, anytime someone made that argument to me that, you know, oh, well, you know, they're not gonna like anything we do, so we should do this thing that, you know, has this detrimental and, you know, unnecessary impact, because, you know, like, who cares? They're not our supporters. They're, they're not gonna agree, so we might as well please yeah. our base, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, that dance sit well with me, and that's not what we are there to do, right? And so sometimes, yeah, you make decisions that aren't going to go over well locally, but you don't do it to, um, you know, it was always my attitude, and certainly my boss's attitude, Secretary Jewell, that, 
you know, that wasn't an appropriate part of the calculus. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So um, uh, Sam mentioned there were some rules, where, uh, rules related to oil and gas, such as the methane rule, and maybe you could say a little bit about that. And I was wondering, you know, how much of that was driven from, you know, interior uh, versus motivations that are coming from EPA or other parts of the administration. So there's both kind of the smaller question, but the larger, you know, you're chief of staff, uh, you've got a lot of different interests at play in terms of other stakeholders in the government. How, how did you sort through those mm -hmm. issues? Constantly. So <laughs> <laughs> um, methane, um, for reasons that, you know, everyone in this room appreciates, I mean, it's a, it's a huge challenge. You know, it's a, um, it's a climate issue, it's extremely potent greenhouse gas, uh, it's also an infrastructure issue, and it's a regulatory issue. And um, it's one of those areas that, um, and this was extremely common uh, across a lot of things, including you know, hydraulic fracturing and other areas that, uh, in the you know, federal coal program where you inherited and were kind of in some ways stuck with a regulatory program and regime that was literally 30 or 40 years old uh, and didn't align very well with um, the current technology, the current scale of operations, or, um, you know, the uh, economics and opportunity uh, that's out there. And so, you know, among other things, methane's an extremely valuable commodity. Uh, and so looking at it, aside from the environmental issues uh, and the greenhouse gas issues, as a matter of stewardship and responsibility uh, to the American people in terms of fair return and protection of the resource that belongs to the American people. So just, just the asset. Just the asset. Right. It's an asset, right? And so to vent it or flare it, um, uh, you're literally, you know, burning up. Um, you know, your fellow citizens' uh, entitlement. So um, uh, it poses all of those challenges. Uh, and that said, um, you know, um, heavy-handed regulation uh, that inhibits, you know, safe development or, you know, causes mature fields like San Juan Basin to become economic is, you know, something that needs to be thought long and hard about as well. And so um, the effort that went into um, things like the BLM's methane rule uh, was enormous. And the amount of outreach and sitting across the table from operators to figure out, okay, what would be the effect of this and how would you handle it and all of that um, was a lot of time was spent. A lot of time was spent, you know, coordinating and talking with the EPA about uh, jurisdictional issues and existing sources versus new sources and what they were looking forward to um, to implementing. Um, that said, um, going in the hard things are hard category, um, you know, we did want to take the stance of uh, if you don't um, it perform as a good steward uh, and provide um, uh, protection for the American people in terms of this resource, you're not doing your job. And if the economics aren't such that uh, it's in the operator's interest to uh, develop the infrastructure, um, they'll make you know, very um, clear-eyed economic calculations too. And so that weighed into 
was, mm -hmm. you know, how do you set up, again, without going overboard, incentives to, uh, to capture. Uh, and, you know, if you can, bring that stuff to market. Mm -hmm. So we tried to, consistent with our authorities, and while there's benefits from limiting emissions, you know, we really tried to focus on our set of authorities, which were, you know, not wasting this resource. Right, the asset protection uh, piece of it. Yeah. Uh, so shifting to coal f uh, for a moment, um, uh, there was notably uh, the uh, secretarial order, order by Secretary Jewell, or former Secretary Jewell, uh, to put a moratorium uh, on coal leasing. Can you tell us a little bit about how that uh, happened? Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and what, what you know, so in, the, in the thinking behind that, part the particular approach that was adopted, which now, you know, there was the Trump executive order that uh, then Secretary Zinke kind of lifted the moratorium on uh, going forward with new leasing. But what was the thinking in terms of imposing the moratorium um, as an approach? Yeah, the and it's a great example of um, <laughs> of this legacy program. So the the federal coal administered by the BLM, the federal coal program um, regulations that govern uh, leasing a coal on federal lands, especially, you know, uh, the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, um, those were developed in 1978, so the late 70s. And the policy imperatives that existed uh, in the late 70s were, you know, around um, vulnerability to energy shocks um, because of international events uh, and the real need to uh, develop a domestic, stable, dependable resource uh, for electricity generation, you know, as the economy was expanding and uh, trying to connect with rural communities and bring and expand electrification. Uh, and so, really important policy. Um, we felt um, every, you know, 30 or 40 years or so, you should take a step back and see if um, that reality uh, is still the one you find yourself in and whether, um, given where we are now, uh, you know, across multitude issues, climate among them, um, but also the energy mix and, um, uh, uh, you know, other types of issues, whether those, those held true anymore uh, or whether other considerations um, should be uh, thought through in planning what the uh, federal coal program for the future ought to look like. And so um, there was lots of input and lots of ideas about all of that. And uh, the purpose behind the PEIS and the programmatic review was to challenge all of that thinking and all of that policy consideration and programmatic consideration into a methodical, um, formal process. Um, you know, there are different ways we could have done it. Uh, I don't think NEPA was necessarily perfect for it, um, but considering the time we had and the type of review we wanted, thought a programmatic EIS was the best way to go, and there was some historical precedent for it. Uh, and so then the question becomes, okay, you're doing this review. Um, what do you do in the meantime? Um, and uh, truth be told, there was a lot of um, you know, applications for new acreage and new coal leases that had been sitting with the BLM. And frankly, you know, for price reasons, 
operators were telling us, you know, we actually don't need that coal right now. Don't act on the application. And that wasn't the political environment, but that was the reality um, because of economics. And so um, the thinking was, uh, on the one hand, new leasing uh, for new tracks ought to be informed by and have the benefit of this analysis so that all of those policy considerations that we talked about um, flow into those decisions on new leases. On the other hand, uh, having <laughs> done a moratorium before uh, following Deepwater Horizon, uh, I also was very sensitive to the idea of, okay, you know, you can't just impose a moratorium. You have to have off-ramps and you have to be sensitive to uh, special cases. And so for a host of legal as well as practical reasons, there were lots of exceptions to it. And so the moratorium itself didn't actually cut off any pending leases. And if there was a mind-to-mouth operation that needed new supply, that was specifically exempted. If there was pending applications where the NEPA had been completed and the operator wanted it, those would be uh, followed through on. And so um, on the one hand, it um, <laughs> didn't do that much, uh, practically speaking. On the other hand, it was very powerful symbolism. Uh, but, it, well. but it could have done a lot. It could have I mean, done were, a lot. You, you, you never got to the results. We yeah, won't ever yeah, know. Yeah, you won't ever know. Uh, if, uh, part of the direction was, uh, you know, we need to get this done pretty fast. <laughs> so, so this is an uh, open-ended uh, moratorium before consequences like that start setting in. But like you said, uh, it got lifted. We had a target for completing it within two years to, for exactly that reason. Um, but it was preempted and the moratorium was lifted. And so... Um, so, you know, there you have it. Um, it was, um, in light of the election, it was like, you know, it was it had a symbolic importance um, to the previous administration and lifting it had uh, a symbolic importance to uh, the current administration uh, in a way that um, is important to people and resonates with people, but um, we will never really know what the, um, um, you know, practical impacts of it uh, would have been over the long term, the moratorium itself. That said, um, while the programmatic review uh, is also not continuing, um, you know, I do think the, there are things, you know, because the coal markets have changed in a fundamental way. And so regardless of your point of view and what those policy levers ought to be, um, there are reforms and issues that the current administration should be looking at in federal coal. Such, uh, such as? Um, you know, even, you know, does a leasing program designed in the late 70s, uh, even if, you know, your idea is you want to promote coal production, um, does that align very well with the new realities of an industry that uh, has restructured itself uh, and is, you know, despite, you know, whatever policy um, the Trump administration promotes um, faces, you know, realities around consumption and production. Uh, and so uh, regardless of your bent uh, in terms of policy, uh, it's still a program that needs modernization. Mm -hmm. And so um, while they won't continue with like the programmatic review, um, I do think um, uh, it is worthwhile um, regardless of, uh, again, one's political point of view to 
um, look at this program and modernize the program. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, getting ready for our talk, I was kind of looking back at some of the events that happened in the Obama administration's Department of the Interior, and I noticed that uh, right, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill occurred uh, April 20th of uh, 2010, and then about a week later, Secretary Salazar approved Cape Wind. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure those two uh, things were not at all uh, related. Um, so I guess I was just wondering. Uh, I never really thought about it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. You, you would know better than I would. Um, but I was just wondering, as we're kind of coming towards the end of our t conversation before opening it up, uh, yeah. are, are there... Obviously, uh, the renewables are increasing. The economics are getting better as they come to scale. Uh, you're seeing the phase out, uh, various tax things. So they're really starting to compete. H how did you see the role of the Department of Interior in terms of facilitating, promoting um, renewable energy, whether offshore wind or transmission corridors or kind of all of that? And what does that mean about the, the Trump? And what should the Trump administration be doing um, uh, to promote these things or at least not impede them. Yeah. Um, so I'm proud of a lot of the things um, we got done in the Obama administration, but right at the top of the list is offshore wind, um, uh, which, you know, when we came in, other than Cape Wind, which, you know, had its troubles and really informed, in light of those troubles, informed the program that we designed within BOEM uh, for leasing going forward. Um, we, we were starting from scratch. And so, you know, I talked a little bit about how I came into government. Um, I didn't talk about why I stayed. Uh, I could have left after we did the reorganization and the standards and we got turned the corner on Deepwater Horizon. Um, and that may have been my spouse's expectation that I would do that. But part of the reason why I stayed was specifically offshore wind and the opportunity in government, which is pretty rare, right? It's pretty rare in life, but let alone in government, to try to stand up a new industry and um, a new vision virtually from scratch. And um, now, as you described, you know, we're on, there's lots of leases out there, states like Massachusetts and uh, New Rhode York and, and yeah, and Rhode Island and you know, New Jersey's gonna hopefully hurry up and, and um, uh, they have some catching up to do. So you have all of this burgeoning stuff and it's like, I think this year is gonna be an enormous year uh, for offshore wind and seeing these projects um, come under uh, PPAs and long-term contracts which uh, will lead to construction in the relatively near future. It's all like, it's on the cusp of happening uh, and it's extremely exciting. And it wasn't that long ago when um, there were these fundamental questions asked based on the Cape Wind experience of, you know, oh my gosh, you know, uh, are we gonna, you know, is this thing gonna happen? And there was enormous, and you, you forget now, but at that time, you know, 2010 or so, uh, there was enormous like political liability at the Interior Department over it. It was like, you know, the Interior Department, Boehm, my agencies, we were in the way, right? Because we couldn't get these leases out and all of that. And so I spent um, an enormous amount of my time, and it was a labor of love, on the offshore wind program to get these leases out, get them done in the right way, um, smart from the start, we called it. Um, which was like doubly clever because it rhymes and is alliterative. But in addition <laughs> to that, it 
was really about deconfliction, right? So it was trying to take the lessons from Cape Wind, um, trying to design wind energy areas that um, had been vetted with stakeholders, uh, states, fishermen, commercial vessels, uh, environmental groups, Native American tribes, uh, and uh, deconflicted up front. Uh, so that when the leases came out, additional analysis will happen and more NEPA review and that sort of thing. But you try to, you know, take the big issues uh, and deal with them up front. Uh, and that's the program that we stood up. And now we've got, um, you know, lots of leases and competitive program. And they're in the hands of operators on the East Coast um, that have the wherewithal uh, to, uh, to build them. And you've got states who are driving programs to um, promote offtake and uh, do their part, really. And it is a critical part uh, to make it a reality as well. So um, the renewable energy side, it's, um, you know, again, people's memories are short. Um, but just in the span of, you know, the eight years in the Obama administration on offshore wind and then onshore, you know, standing up solar uh, and wind on public lands, uh, tremendous, tremendous progress. And uh, the transmission piece that you mentioned uh, is a huge part of the puzzle and really difficult one. Mm -hmm. um, but that's one of the challenges of renewable energy, right, is, you know, take where the sun shines and blows and put it where, uh, you know, Southern California and other places where people need it. And uh, transmission is uh, critical, um, but it's really, uh, challenging as well from a permitting uh, mm -hmm. perspective. And that's frankly, you know, one of the upsides I see for the current administration and its emphasis on infrastructure across the board. Um, more infrastructure done right um, uh, with appropriate consideration for uh, impacts and, and appropriate planning. You know, uh, this country needs it and that includes transmission. Uh, so uh, in terms of, you know, the current administration and its outlook on renewables. Um, you know, uh, on offshore wind, um, the Interior Department and Secretary Zinke and the program has been humming along. Mm -hmm. uh, and they seem uh, completely supportive and behind it. Um, you know, there's been some funky statements out there about solar, and so we'll see how uh, that goes. And then obviously the the tariff issues, right. and so um, each of these industries, I think, are being thought about in slightly different ways. Um, but the mantra, you know, which was our mantra, of all of the above, uh, seems to be there. I mean, we got accused of like all of the above and none of the below, uh, which <laughs> was never, which is never really true. Um, but that was that was certainly the stereotype. Um, so, um, you know, I think there's. You know, and again, we could have policy discussions, and there's certainly plenty, you know, that I'm critical of. But you know, I think given the administration, the benefit of the, of the doubt on renewables is is warranted. Yeah, great. So I'd love to take some uh, questions for the audience uh, here. Yes, Tom. Um, <coughs> and go to the examples of the um, methane capsule. And the oh, do, do you have a mic? Yep. Thanks, Vicky. Thanks. In both of the examples of the methane capture rule and the moratorium, temporary moratorium on coal leasing, um, was there any internal discussion about whether a price instrument might have made more sense than 
capping? Yeah, absolutely. And this was, I mean, it's a great question and it's fundamental, right? And I think it's a fundamental insight into not all of the regulation, but some of the regulation where um, there are other mechanisms if, if you're concerned about certain things, including greenhouse gas emissions and climate, there's no doubt that there's other more direct and effective mechanisms, you know. Um, uh, from an analytical standpoint, you know, social cost of carbon uh, and understanding what that is so that it can inform decision making. And then, you know, the most rational thing in the world, and I appreciate that I'm in Chicago saying this, is, you know, a carbon tax. And, you know, the fact is, um, uh, if done the right way, you know, it is, um, it's the most rational thing and that's why a lot of businesses uh, support it. Um, but that wasn't in the cards. And uh, we definitely had an administration that uh, was very concerned about and focused on uh, climate change and its impacts. And um, there certainly was a lot of conversation about, on the one hand, what were the tools and levers that actually were available to us, as imperfect as they may be. Uh, and on the other hand, a lot of conversation about um, how the authorities lined up with that um, and uh, what's defensible and what's an appropriate use of those authorities. Um, but there's no question that, um, you know, in a perfect world, there's much more uh, direct and effective ways to get at some of these issues. So, so did you look at an environmental adder for coal from federal lands? That was specifically something, uh, and again, you know, that was the whole idea with the programmatic EIS was to create a formal process for vetting ideas like that. And so, yes, of course, you know, lots of conversations around um, incentives uh, within the federal code program, whether it's an adder, whether it's adjusting the royalty rate, whether it's sure. affecting um, bonus bid amounts, you know, lots of those ideas, all of which, some are programmatic and some were modernizing and some were ways to try to get at this externality um, that, um, uh, you know, strong arguments could be made needed to be addressed. And so, um, that said, you know, lots of good ideas, they required some analysis and some vetting and so that was the idea with the programmatic was to put that into a process where it could be really um, analyzed and those judgments could be made and, you know, frankly why, again, from a, you know, values neutral standpoint, um, you know, I think there'd be benefit to completing that type of analysis. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, right there. So I, I kind of think we've come right up to this, but I, I'm curious to like very, you know, uh, directly ask you the, if I think about energy development in the Trump administration and the promises or the goals that they outlined on the campaign of, you know, uh, bringing back coal and making America energy dominant and, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, the first two big public things were the, notice the proposed rulemaking uh, and the whole process between DOE and FERC for the coal subsidization and right. nuclear subsidization. Uh, and now this uh, announcement of opening, as you said, 25 to 26 of the OCS planning areas. And 
what strikes me is that in both cases, uh, the ability to actually implement the campaign policy goal seems to be largely absent. I mean, both those processes, you could have come up with ways to do it and probably achieved much more uh, of what they of, of the campaign goal than the way they did it, which in the NOPR case now is just completely flamed out. And in the offshore thing, yeah, there's a long process to go and everything else, but as you kind of touched on, like, you know, Zinke by arbitrarily pulling Florida off has made their legal pathway at least somewhat perilous now. Um, and is arguably inconsistent with the <laughs> right, <it's, laughs> pro-production Right, right. <laughs> and so, so that's, on one hand, I see like, okay, they've got these big ambitions, but they actually have no clue how to do it. And it's kind of ham-fisted and it, it might not work. On the other hand, lifting the coal moratorium, I think you guys have touched on it a little bit, but it could be substantial. Markets are in one direction now for coal, but markets go up, markets change. It could be hugely substantial. And so I, I guess I still, in my own mind, haven't really made up. And I, and I ask you as a person who you know, spent six years really in the, in the machinery of, of a lot of these policy issues, what do you think is going to happen? Six, mm -hmm. you know, four years from now, are we going to be producing you know, lots more oil and gas and coal uh, than we would have otherwise? Or do you think that the, the kind of the, you know, the system that's in place, the bureaucracy, uh, the federal regulatory process is potentially more challenging than they're going to be able to really, you know, yeah. do, it's just going to come down to markets and, and who knows. Yeah. Um, so I think, and again, you know, you're pointing out sort of the uh, mismatch between the rhetoric and, you know, what you can actually affect through policy, especially policy on, you know, public lands. You know, how much can you really move the needle on all of this stuff, regardless what you want to do uh, and which direction you want to move the needle. Um, and I agree. I think the, the rhetoric completely outstrips the, um, the ability through these policy levers to actually, you know, make fundamental changes that they seem to be saying, um, you know, our policy. And so... You know, taking the offshore program uh, as an example, um, you know, they face some challenges, right? The, on the one hand, you know, this energy dominance stuff. And there was a time where, you know, I was in the room with, um, you know, politicals from the current administration and, you know, they had a hard time saying it without laughing, right? Like energy, you know, it's so macho. But, um, <laughs> but they got used to it, you know? <laughs> now it just rolls off the tongue. Um, and, um, and I think part of the reason why the serious people who, you know, are now in those positions, who have spent careers, you know, on wonky policy issues, had a hard time uttering it uh, as an initial matter is, you know, it sounded ridiculous to them because that's not realistic and that's not what it's all about. And yet it's become what it's, at least at a political and rhetorical level, what it's all about. And so... Um, that creates a little bit of a dynamic where, um, and I think the five-year program and the draft proposed program is a stark example of it, um, where you do things um, to um, promote this energy dominance rhetoric that um, a consequence of which are one, um, they're not really practical. 
uh, and it's not really what's going to happen. And two, you set traps for yourself um, quite unnecessarily, right? And so, uh, and it leads to some of the ham-fistedness and, you know, amateurishness and, you know, stepping on rakes that we've seen happen already. And so, I, you know, my personal point of view is um, if you are serious about um, creating opportunity, for example, for the offshore oil and gas industry, there are things that this administration could do. Um, Willy-nilly opening areas that have no resource potential um, isn't going to do it. Willy-nilly taking areas off that do have resource potential isn't going to do it. Um, I laughed to myself when the, uh, at the Boehm public meeting in Annapolis, the attorney general for Maryland shows up and says, you know, the only thing that Florida has that uh, Maryland doesn't is Mar-a-Lago. And it's like, well, that and oil, you know. Um, you know, they're not going to drill off of Maryland. Um, and so, um, so from an access standpoint, there's things that they could do that would be logical. Um, Can you give an example of that? Yeah, they should consider, and again, so the Eastern Gulf is closed to, by congressional moratorium through June 2022. Um, you know, they should think hard about working with Congress on, um, you know, what makes sense there and whether that's buffers or whatever uh, to protect Florida's interests while um, providing access to, you know, this part of the Gulf that uh, it's not, you know, necessarily the same as uh, the central Gulf of Mexico, but it's perspective and realistic, right? They should think about that. Um, they should think about, you know, the Beaufort Sea uh, in Alaska. Um, you know, the Chukchi Sea, is anyone going to spend a dime in the Chukchi Sea anytime soon uh, when in the global mix of um, opportunity that, you know, companies with the wherewithal to um, explore in the Chukchi Sea have available to them? I don't know. I mean, politically, you can make it available. We'll see if anyone shows up. So in terms of access, those are the conversations that they should really be having. If they want to be ornery about it, talk about Southern California. You know, there's potential there. You know, if you want to wade into that, at least from a pro-production standpoint, it's geologically supported. Um, but if you really want to make a difference, um, rather than, you know, these splashy announcements about, you know, making 90% of the OCS available as if, you know, the resource is evenly distributed, um, you should think about, again, this theme of um, modernization and reform. You know, if you are serious about opening, for example, the Atlantic to exploration, does um, making that area available in the same way you do the Gulf of Mexico in three by three lease blocks, you know, does that make sense? Or should you think about exploration units and that sort of thing? And so there are things that if they were serious um, and they had the capacity and um, weren't distracting themselves with reorgs and that sort of thing, if they were serious and wanted to um, push that type of agenda, there are things they could do, um, which um, would 
promote the rhetoric, but actually, you know, our hard work and, you know, it takes time to figure out and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and on coal, you know, again, um, you know, the more torn, lifting the more, you know, in a way it was like a gift, right? It was like a very easy thing to do. You wiped it out, like, you know, we gave it to them. Um, but, you know, there are things that they could, and it takes hard work and, you know, that sort of stuff and process. Um, but there's things that they could do uh, in the Powder River Basin that aren't going to transform the fundamental economics and the direction that um, uh, coal is likely to be headed in terms of our energy mix, but um, are consistent with um, and in some ways normalize the coal industry uh, relative to uh, the way other industries have to work in terms of leasing and access. And, um, you know, again, I, I don't advise Secretary Zinke, but if I did, it would be those types of things that I would be demanding of the staff to say, okay, you know, we're in charge of the federal coal program. How do we um, make it work better uh, given, you know, what we think um, uh, the policy goals of the administration are? And we haven't seen that much of that. And, you know, the deregulatory stuff, you know, obviously that comes, you know, that again, you know, it's not, I think, as easy as some folks thought it would be. And, you know, it's hard to undo rules because you have to do a rule to undo a rule. But, um, you know, in a way that's like low-hanging fruit. Um, if they're really going to match the rhetoric, um, there's a lot, a lot more difficult things to do. Liz? been too worried about the offshore drilling because the economics are so bad right now like who in the world would try to build an offshore platform when the prices are low we have a glut coming out of fracking essentially for free um, but I don't know how the lease program works and so maybe you can tell us is there any advantage to companies buying leases and sitting on them knowing that they wouldn't be producing for a decade or more but they want them as spares I don't know how the whole lease program is structured yeah so is that a concern that we have that there would be preemptive purchase of leases to lock in the rights, and then it's impossible to undo because now it's a contract. So that, you know, when the industry talks about, um, mostly through trade associations, talks about uh, expanding access, that's kind of what they're talking about, right? They're talking about option value. Um, so in, you know, some remote place that has no resource, like the Schumann Basin uh, off of the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, they're not going to no one's going to show up for that. Um, but the mid and South Atlantic, where even though there hasn't been um, modern seismic uh, acquired there, um, there hasn't been seismic activity, you know, permitted there for, you know, decades. Um, geologists, you know, do modeling and they um, uh, enhance the existing seismic and they look at places like uh, offshore Africa and develop models about. Um, what the place might look like and that sort of thing. And so, no, it's 10 years. Right, so the maximum, so the option value is once you acquire a lease, the maximum lease term is 10 years. Um, but it doesn't renew itself. But again, in a new area, you know, that comes relatively inexpensively.
that's true. No, I mean, there is real option value. I mean, if oil goes to $140 a barrel again someday and, you know, exploration's worth it. I mean, the fact is, you know, people don't know this. In the 70s and 80s, there were more than 50 exploration drill wells drilled in the Atlantic. Uh, and there was a reason for that. And the program was different then. Um, but um, if the energy mix looks different or if, you know, we see $140 uh, barrel and oil again, which is what the price was when they leased the Chuck GC. Who knows? Yes? Uh, who does the uh, exploration in uh, the Atlantic uh, when there's no leases for the oil? You, you just mentioned their exploratory wells. Was that done by the government or was that done by No, that was done by companies uh, under leases that existed in the 70s and 80s. Uh, They give it to the government, to my former agency. Um, the well data itself is not public knowledge, but the data resides with the government. And the government could make it public or So if you go to Bohm's website, um, it'll tell you what the results for each of those wells was, um, but you don't get specific sort of logging information or anything like that, just the overall result of what the well um, was, which in all of those cases was non-commercial. In all these areas, is, is the government um, right now looking at uh, doing geological surveys or are you just uh, circulating empirical statements about how valuable the, the oil is? On yeah, so the government itself doesn't, so for example, like a first step, which is a controversial one in the Atlantic would be uh, for seismic, you know, acoustic energy to um, characterize the formation and the geology. Um, that would be done by private contractors permitted by the Interior Department and NOAA. Um, we made a policy decision in the Obama administration not to permit that activity, presumably under the executive orders issued by the current administration that says we want that to move forward. Presumably, um, they'll look to do that. And who would own that information? The seismic company that acquires it. It's proprietary, it's commercial for them, so they sell it uh, to industry. They have to give it to the government as part of a lease uh, permit stipulation, so we can see it. Um, but the data itself is proprietary that the company, that's their business, they sell it to oil and gas companies. And the government is not in the business of selling that information? That's right. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And treat it as proprietary because it, it's commercial. Sorry, the lights are blinding me. I'm looking uh, through other <laughs> questions out there. So, so uh, okay, right here, please, in the front. When you look at uh, regulations, there's regulator, regulate, regulatory certainty, um, low-cost regulation, and an even playing field. When you were in Bohm uh, or in the government, how did you weigh those different options when looking at regulations, and how do you think industry sees them? Yeah. Um, So it depends a little bit on the regulation, right, and what the field is and, you know, what your policy goals are with particular regulation. I think, in general, um, industry values the certainty piece quite a bit. Um, and, you know, taking methane as one example, um, 
you know, you spend a lot of time talking about, okay, what do you currently do and how would that square with this reg text and, you know, what's appropriate to push you a little bit and what are you really, you know, just creating a rule that you're able to comply with. And so those conversations happen. Um, I will tell you on a lot of issues, including the methane issue where, you know, industry and certain operators and certain um, locations have invested pretty heavily um, in um, methane capture or leak detection and increasing valves and um, all of that stuff. Um, just because the government's telling them you don't have to do it anymore, I think they're looking beyond these cycles, right? And uh, want to get, and I've had a lot of conversations with um, individual companies who are like, you know, yeah, you know, there's regulatory improvements that we think are beneficial and we'd like to see that, but there is a such thing as, you know, not getting caught up in the ups and downs in the cycles because it'll all come back and, you know, we'd like to be able to operate on a predictable basis even if it pushes us a little bit. And so, you know, from a government perspective, I think there's, you know, while you try to be responsible, there's a lot more sort of policy push on, um, on that end from an industry perspective. While there's harmful regulation that, you know, they'd like to see addressed, predictability, stability, certainty, um, is is most highly valued. Yeah, I know there is. You know, and those aren't things you know people put in press releases, um, but those are some of the conversations that happen when you go into the White House or OMB or the Interior Department. And you say, you know what, you know this for a bunch of reasons, including you know, we're okay with it, or uncertainty, or social license, they're like, you know, don't get carried away here. Or, or will, will different members of the same industry take different positions on some yeah. of these? Okay. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's... Or at, least yeah. behind, at least behind closed doors. You yeah. Know, API may be saying, saying something, but... Yeah, yeah, and, you know, you shouldn't be naive either. Like, certain industry operators see competitive advantage in compliance with um, certain standards, right? Like they have the wherewithal to meet certain standards that their competitors don't, and they think about, you know, okay, is, yeah, is that regulation good? Because it, uh, we have competitive advantage on it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that you guys didn't talk about is um, offshore safety. I mean, you talked a little bit about the the rules that they're repealing, but I guess a, a, a more fundamental question. Again, you know, you had such, uh, you know, you were there at such an incredible time. Uh, a lot of people, I think, don't realize that uh, BP paid for the, ma the vast majority of the costs of the spill out of pocket. And that the, you know, the financial responsibility... We were lucky it was BP. Right. Well, and I'll the just financial say, it wasn't just out of I mean, they sold <laughs> assets all over the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't the like... But they financed but, it. But they yeah, weren't required to do that. I mean... They could have paid up to the financial responsibility and liability limits and covered some of the law and dealt with the lawsuits, but they paid way more out of pocket voluntarily than they probably technically had to. And they were upfront about it that they said they were going to do that. And, you know, who knows what the federal government could have come up with to try to coerce them to do it. But the structure of financial responsibility and liability limits in the, in the OCS at the time were, I think they only had to pay up to $75 million. Right. And now, 
the Obama administration increased that a little bit, but it's only up to whatever it is, $100 million or right. something. And so I guess two questions. One is, I don't think anything's ever changed with that. Did you, did you guys ever consider, uh, you know, instead of dealing with liability limits at those very low levels, for, for a spill whose cleanup costs went into the tens of billions of dollars, right. you know, like a sudden death rule, that if you have an accident like that, you're just never allowed to come back. I mean, I think, if I, don't, if I could be remembering incorrectly, but I think you know, other uh, OECD countries that have OCS development have those kinds of things. Norway, I think, has one. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Two, you know, the industry now, when they talk about rolling all these things back, are saying, well, we learned Deepwater Horizon. You know, we learned all these lessons. Uh, you know, now these rules are just punitive, and they're too prescriptive. They're technology forcing or whatever. And I just, I guess, just your kind of gut assessment, like, you know, do you think we are fundamentally, do you think the industry operates in a fundamentally safer way today than it did then? And do you think that the rules are necessary to keep that? Or do you think that there has been, that was a fluke or that there have been some series of learnings that are, you know, are more fundamental? Right. Um, sort of going to the open 90 limits and sort of your first question. Yeah, all of those things were talked about. And most of them would require legislation uh, and uh, there were a number of legislative proposals um, that we worked on and worked with various folks, including especially Bingaman at the time, and it went nowhere. Uh, and the reason it went nowhere is uh, every time a offshore safety-related um, measure was put forward in the Senate, um, it died over revenue-sharing issues. Uh, and, you know, and I did a lot of work with Mary Landrew, and she was great in a lot of ways, but you know, she made clear that there was not gonna be an offshore bill come through the Senate Energy Committee that didn't have uh, revenue sharing attached to it. So, so that didn't happen. Um, uh, and you're right, you know, we did our best through administrative measures to you know, adjust the OPA 90 limits and that sort of thing and catch up for inflation because they hadn't been adjusted since 1993. And so, you know, we did that. But it's um, comes nowhere near covering, um, you know, the liability associated with a significant spill. And we were lucky it was BP. If it had been a smaller operator, the risk of walking away uh, would have been completely different. And the fact is, and folks aren't, you know, conscious of this, um, there are there is a wide range of operators in the Gulf of Mexico, and I, you know, was surprised when I came into the job that you know there's mom and pops out there, you know, drilling and operating platforms, uh, not not an ultra, not an ultra, not you know a Macondo type thing, but um, wells that nevertheless carry risk. Uh, and so, going to um, your other question about you know. Are these rigs necessary? Do you really even need a Bessie anymore? Industry has stepped up. I'll say, you know, industry following the incident um, did step up, you know, across the board, um, including, you know, emergency response capacity and the Marine Well Containment Corporation to, you know, respond to um, a subsea blowout uh, more rapidly than 89 days. All of that stuff happened uh, and it still exists. I think the risk um, comes from um, 
the potential of moving into a complacency, right? And so part of the overall risk when you get rid of the safety regulator is you've got rid of the safety regulator. You know, like you don't have that tone of vigilance. You don't have you know a Bessie whose whole um, mission is to uh, indoctrinate a culture of safety and, and maintain focus on that. And so you lose something. Uh, and that was really the story of you know Deepwater Horizon in a lot of ways. And this this you know lore that you know there'd never been an incident in the offshore and all of this. Well, you come to find out there were a lot of near misses and that sort of thing. And then on the regs themselves, so again, it hasn't been formally proposed, but based on you know, drafts that have leaked, you know, is it a wholesale dismantling of uh, the safety regulation, the well control rule? It's not that. Um, but it does, do, <laughs> it does do some things that are troubling in terms of safety performance. So to take one example, if we have yeah. a little bit of time. So one example is um, this concept of drilling margin. And so what a drilling margin is when you're drilling an exploratory well is that ratio between um, what you have to put in the hole in the form of mud, drilling fluid, to keep hydrocarbons where they belong um, and not you know, come up to the well. That ratio, that pressure you create with the drilling mud versus the integrity of the formation around it. Right, so the fracture gradient. So if you put too much pressure in the hole, you can break the geology, and then you have a problem there too, because hydrocarbons can escape up through the formation. And so that margin, that ratio, um, is a very key aspect to a well design and maintaining control of a well. And so part of what the well control rule does is says you have to maintain a safe drilling margin, which generally is 0.5, but you know, depending on operational conditions, you can deviate from that. Industry doesn't have a problem necessarily with 0.5 and with the standards and the way they work. The word that's being excised in the proposed rule is safe. You, know, you can see lawyers influencing that, saying, well, you know, we can't promise it's safe, and that's not really our job. Our job's, you know, to drill this well and maintain, you know, a fracture gradient. And you know, you're attaching this aspiration to it that, you know, shouldn't have regulatory force. And the whole point of that is, on the one hand, you will hear some industry operators say, you know, you give us too much prescription. Uh, we want performance. So your standards should be performance-based. Well. Especially in the context of drilling margin, that's what we want. We want safe performance, and that's why that word is there. And so the fact that part of the um, reconsideration of the well control rule is removing words like safe from drilling margin or um, uh, you know some of the work, you know, adjectives attached to the performance of blowout preventers, including seal. They want to take the word seal out. Like blowout preventers, you know, hopefully seal, but really all we're responsible for is the shear rams activating. That's all we have control over. Whether it seals or not, that's up to God. And so <laughs> the, again, you know, what troubles me about that is, you know, your point about, you know, if you remove the expectation in the regulation and from the regulator of performance around things like safe drilling margin, 
performance of BOP around actually arresting the well by creating a seal, then you've let your foot off the gas and you hope responsible actors chastened by this massive liability that one of their peers experienced never backslide, um, but you'd take on the risk of uh, complacency, especially in as complex an industry as the offshore oil and gas industry. Great. Well, please join me in thanking Tommy Boudreau for being with us. Thanks for listening to our conversation. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.